Nevertheless, work your way to Romans chapter 16. It's good to be here with you this morning as we close out uh, the book of Romans together. Uh, I'm thinking about this chapter as we, as we begin to jump into it, uh, Romans 16. I was thinking about kind of an outlier. Uh, it was actually found in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. It's the opening story of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Rosetto, Pennsylvania is a, uh, uh, it was founded by Italian immigrants from Rosetto, Italy, as they came over in the, the end of the 1800s, first by uh, uh, dozens and then by hundreds, and eventually filling up, building up a town, building the roads, uh, building the factories. The men worked in the mines where uh, they had worked in mines in Italy. They built the town square, built the church, and they just began to uh, build this community get together. They spoke Italian together. Uh, they kind of were isolated because uh, to their immediate west, they had uh, Bangor, Pennsylvania, and then on the other side, they had Nazareth. And in Bangor, there were Welsh, English-speaking immigrants, and in Nazareth, it was Germans. And so this little Italian community just kind of lived in relative isolation, and they would have stayed that way except for uh, in uh, the 1950s, a doctor at the University of Oklahoma, a medical uh, doctor um, for medical students, he had spent his summers in Pennsylvania, and as he came home one day, he was asked to give a speech to the local medical society, and he talked, and one of the doctors from the area came up to him afterwards and said, hey, uh, could, we, could we grab a beer? And he said, sure. And as they're chatting, he says, you know, I do medical work all over this region, but you know what I never see? I never see any heart disease uh, or heart attacks from the people of Rosetta. He's like, how is this possible? This is the 1950s. It was, the, it was epidemic then. There was no uh, medicine. There was no aggressive treatment. Uh, it was the number one cause of death for, for men under 65. And, and this doctor just said, uh, it doesn't happen there. And so uh, Dr. St uh, Stuart Wolf from uh, University of Oklahoma said, I got to check this out. And so the next summer he brought um, uh, grad students and uh, started to do some research on the townspeople, did EKGs and all these things and, and found, yeah, in fact, uh, they were um, not dying of heart disease. They, they, but but they, they started to discover it wasn't just heart disease. They weren't getting cancer, that they weren't uh, dying of suicide. Like in, in all these uh, measurable ways, they, they were having a, a, a death rate of less than 35 to 45% of what was expected. And so he went back to Oklahoma, got his uh, sociologist uh, co-worker and, and uh, Dr. Uh, John Brune and said, Let, let's, let's do some study on this. Let's see what's going on. And so uh, they, they, they brought another army of medical and grad students and they, they, they said, what, how is this possible? As they, they studied it, they're like, yeah, they're not dying really of anything but old age. It was, it was amazing. And so they, they, they couldn't figure this out. And so they wanted to figure out what, what is the reason for that? Well, maybe it was their healthy eating. But, but that actually, they, they found out very quickly, that's not the case. They had, they had left healthy eating in Italy. They had left cooking with olive oil in Italy, and they were cooking with lard in Pennsylvania. They found that 41% of their calories was coming from fat. Like, that, that's not good. And they're like, well, uh, do, do they just exercise? Do they do yoga? What, what is it? Like, no, they're, they're pretty ordinary. In fact, most of them were heavy smokers, and uh, they, a lot of them struggled with weight issues. And so they're like, wow, how is... How, how is that even possible? We'll say, well, maybe it was genetics. Maybe this, they were so kind of genetically isolated that, that they were able to uh, have these long lives. And they said, well, you know, others from Rosetta came over at the same time and didn't land in Rosetta, Pennsylvania, but, but had spread out. So they basically went to all the cousins across the U.S. 
And there was no difference in them than the rest of America. They were dying at the same rates from the same diseases. So it wasn't genetics. They thought, well, maybe it was just the, the particular place, Rosetta, Pennsylvania. Maybe that, that, that's, the, that's the deal. And they said, well, let's look into that. But right next to them in Bangor, Maine and Nazareth, uh, that those people were dying at three times the rate from heart disease than those of Rosetta. And they, they couldn't figure out why is it, how is this community able to uh, have such, uh, such, such results? They were an outlier. So they decided, well, we just need to study. We need to spend time with them. We need to just observe. And so uh, Dr. Brune and uh, Dr. Wolf went there, and they just, they just observed. And what they observed was they, they just a community that when someone was walking down the street and someone was walking by, they never just passed each other. They stopped and chatted for a long time in Italian almost without fail. They'd watch people leave their front door and go across the street and spend time in another person's home. They'd watch someone set up their barbecue and invite their whole street over to have a meal together. Like almost every day, this was an occurrence. The community would gather all of them together on Sunday morning and come together for church, not just to pursue God, but to pursue one another. They found in this town of about 2,000 people, they had 21 different civic organizations that, that the town was just multi-layered, connected to, that they found that this, this community lived life together authentically. They belonged to each other. They had accountability. They had care for one another. People weren't committing suicide. The, the rich people weren't flaunting their wealth or separating themselves, but the poor people, none of them went on welfare because they had such connection to the community that they were supported and cared for along the way. And so as these doctors found, it, it was simply the life together, the deepness of their relationship and love for one another was preserving their life. They tried to take it to the medical community and show them like this is happening. But of course, all the other doctors and scientists are like, no, it has to be something else. It just has to be something else that doesn't make sense to us. But, but, but when we look at the Bible, we see the kind of life together that they lived. It's actually closer representation of what life was meant to be than our kind of post-enlightenment world, where we all live isolated lives, where we're all pursuing a vision of the good life that we think is for ourselves and our little family and all that. Uh, but in the end, it in, ends up failing to deliver on its promises. Now, now the reason I mention all that at, before we get to Romans chapter 16 is because as you turn there, you, you see uh, something that looks at first glance as quite unimpressive. This book, the book of Romans, has been very impressive. It, it's been rich and deep and wide and far, and I hope that the gospel has stirred in you uh, in new ways through this book. But as we get to Romans 16, even the, the kind of ESV chapter title heading is, is not that not that impressive. It says personal greetings. This is a kind of passage in the Bible that when you get to, if you've got a reading plan, you're like, great, I can skip this today and just check that off because those are a bunch of names and a bunch of places that mean nothing to me. Let's see what's, let's move on. Oh, 1 Corinthians is next. Let's, let's just get on to that. But, but, but I want us to just pause a little bit and, and just ponder uh, what, what is actually represented in this list. See, the Apostle Paul understood that we are relational beings. We are designed to be in right relationship with God. And so I'll put it on the screen here. This is what the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans has done. So 
The first 11 chapters of Romans is basically representing this. How, how can sinful man and a holy God be reconciled together? And for 11 chapters, Paul has just unpacked the gospel. That, that, that salvation is found by grace through faith. Thank you so much. Is it coffee? I'm going to burn my... Oh, that is hot, too. This is a debacle up here. Mm, yeah, that's going to burn my lips. I'm afraid. Thank you, though. Um, so Romans 11, or <clears throat> 1 through 11. 1 through 11. So Paul has that. That's what has been represented. Then in chapters 12 through 16, he said, though, though we can be reconciled with God, the kingdom of God looks like us being reconciled to each other through the gospel. So the gospel doesn't just do a vertical work. It does a horizontal work. It, it can reconcile Jews and Gentiles. It can re- reconcile rich and poor. It can reconcile Republicans and Democrats. It can reconcile all people to God and to one another and, and create a faith family. This is what Paul has been getting at. But again, if you think of the life of Paul, um, think about how in, in, the, gospel, in, the, in the, the book of Acts, how he came to faith. Paul was this up-and-comer amongst the Jewish religion. He was a student of Gamaliel, the Jewish Aristotle of the day. He, he was... Um, he was on his way to becoming the high priest. He was well-connected, well-established, uh, and he was, he was it. He, he was going to the top. And he thought, the best thing I could do right now is to squash this little group of people called Christians so I can do a work to God. And in Acts chapter 9, God comes and knocks him off his horse, literally, and blinds him and says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. And then Jesus basically doesn't given an invitation, doesn't say, hey, you should accept me into your heart. He just says, uh, Saul, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're, you're going to represent me among the nations. And Paul's like, awesome, let's go. But in that moment, he lost everything. He lost his family, his friends. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm going to have a whole buff. Whole bu- Can I get a Sprite too, maybe? A- mm. Is it? Lo- no, they- oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. You guys take care of me. Where was I? Oh, so he lost everything. Think about his life. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his job. He, he like, like everything that was dear to him in the moment that he encountered the resurrected Jesus and Jesus called him to himself, he had nothing. But it reminds me of Jesus' words to you and to me and all that would follow him. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Jesus promised us that when we leave everything for him, he will bring it back. And and Romans chapter 16 kind of represents the fulfillment of that promise for the apostle Paul. He's going to list some names, but but what you need to understand, these are real people in real time, in real places, with real stories that have intersected with the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul's probably been a Christian now for about 30 years. And over these 30 years, God has done some amazing things in and through his life, but he's done them through other people and through the body of Christ. And so as he lists these names, these are real stories, people that have been in the battle with him people that have some, some shared scars, people that have been in prison with him. There are rich people and there are poor people represented in this list of about 30 people. 
There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And Paul's been laboring in the book of Romans to say, we can be one family. There's slaves and there are free people in this list. There are people of high stature like uh, Erastus, who even today in Corinth, you can go and see his name inscribed in the side of one of the buildings there. And there's people like Urbanus, who was a slave. A lot of these people we don't know a lot about, but just know that they were deep and dear to him. They were part of Paul's story. They were part of the way that God provided for him and supported him, that they were a family to him. So so I want to ask you, even as we go through this list, who's on your list? And whoever's on your list, it's more than a list. You've got some shared stories. Maybe you have some shared scars. Maybe you have some journey together. Who's on your list? So if you have your Bible, look at Romans chapter 16. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Of the 30 uh, people listed here, about 10 of them are women. Uh, and, and one of the things that Paul's going to do in, in the book of Romans, Romans 16, is highlight women. Uh, and this would, have been, uh, this would have been remarkable for several reasons. Now, it wasn't remarkable in the first century to write a letter and at the end put some greetings in there. What would have been remarkable was to put any woman in there. But you just didn't do that in the first century say, well, meet this guy. It was a male-dominated society, but, but Paul does not just put women in his list. He highlights and elevates the role of women in the church and their essential nature, uh, as he's shown in Romans chapter 12. Every member, male or female, in the body of Christ is essential, and so he does some work to just lift up some women in this list as well. Let's look at it together. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the first thing he says, I want to uh, put at the very front of my list, Phoebe. So Phoebe is the one that most likely is the one that carried this letter from uh, Corinth into Rome. Uh, There's several things we see about Phoebe right away. She's a patron, meaning she's a supporter. She had some financial means. She's probably a business entrepreneur. She's, she's a woman of some means, but she's used those means for the advancement of the gospel. She's helped support the church. She's specifically helped support the Apostle Paul do his work. So he's, she's called a patron. It says in verse 1, she's a servant of the church. The, the word there for servant is diakonos. It's a deacon of the church. She had a formal role of leadership within the church in Sincrea. He says, why don't you welcome her in a manner worthy of the Lord? And this is also significant because as she would be entrusted, maybe she had some business to, to go to Rome. Maybe she told Paul, hey, I'm going to Rome. Do you want to write a letter? He's like, oh, I'll write a letter. Let me, let me get out. Uh, Tertius, you write this letter because we see that he's the one that writes it later. But he, he, he speaks it to Tertius. And as he's writing the letter, in the first century, if you were the letter bearer, you were uh, then expected to be the one that would go and read it. Now, there's about five house churches represented in this list. So we don't know if she would take this letter and go to each one of the five houses and read it uh, out loud then or, or what. But the other thing in the first century, the letter carrier would be the one to be the first person to answer the questions. So she probably spent some time with the Apostle Paul and said, well, what do you mean by that? There's some difficult things here. What, what do you mean that, that God is sovereign over salvation? What do you mean that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes? And so she would have been uh, learned this first. She would have been the first one to read it. 
And in a sense, as people would have asked their questions, she would have been the first one to teach this letter, the book of Romans. So Paul says, honor her as, a, as she is worthy of honor. Honor her as she comes into your midst. Give her whatever you need. Let's go on. Verse 3, Greek Prisca and Aquila. Now we have a husband and wife combo. It says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We first learn about them in Acts chapter 18. Paul goes to Corinth to share the gospel. They, had been, they are Jews who had been kicked out of Rome by Claudius, and they were tent makers like Paul. And so they, they worked together in the day, and on the weekends they did ministry together. And as they worked together, they probably learned a ton from the Apostle Paul, and he learned from them. It says, greet them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Again, you, do you feel the affection Paul has for them? Do you, do you feel the story? We, we don't know what that story was. But he's thinking as he's, as he's, uh, as he's telling Tertius what to write down, he, uh, no doubt he's, he's remembering that time where his life was on the line and this, this husband and wife step in and, and they, 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 the, the text literally says, put their necks down on the ground for Paul. I mean, that's, that's commitment. That's love. He says, to whom... Not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. It says, greet also the church in their house. So, so they were ch house church leaders. Think uh, kind of gospel community leaders in our midst. Greet them as well. Then he says, greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert in Christ to Asia, in Asia. So when Paul went to Ephesus, Again, now he's thinking about the first person to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what that day was like. Maybe Paul was preaching and, and wondering in the back of his head, as sometimes we can wonder as you're sharing the gospel, is anyone going to believe this message? And he's preaching, and eventually Epinetus says, I believe that. I want life in Christ. Tell, can you tell me more? And a relationship is born between him and God and him and Paul. And, and the weeks go by and the months go by and Epinetus grows in his knowledge of the Lord. And, and Paul just loves this guy. And he grows up and becomes a leader in the church. Verse 6, greet Mary, Mary who has worked hard for you. She has served the church well. Greet her. Greet Andronicus and Junia my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. Again, this is maybe a husband and wife combo, but, but at some point along the line, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus uh, and, and Paul's faith in the Lord Jesus, they were thrown into prison together. Maybe he's thinking about the prayers they prayed in that jail cell, the, the, the songs that they sung, the hymns that they sung, and he's like, man, greet them. I love those guys. They're fellow prisoners. They're my kinsmen. That, that means like they're like family to me. They're my brother and my sister. They are well known to the apostles, or your translation might say among the apostles, meaning they are apostello, little a's. They are, that just means sent ones. There's the 12 apostles, but everyone else that is a missionary or sent out is apostello. They are sent out. These, these people, Andronicus and Junia, are apostellos. They are sent out. And they were in Christ before me. Now, the Apostle Paul probably came to Christ, know Christ a year, two, maybe three years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he's saying this, this couple, Andronicus and Junia, they were in Christ before Paul. So maybe at, at Pentecost, when Peter stands up in Jerusalem and preaches and 2,000 come to know the Lord, they might be some of those numbers. And they might have 
uh, taught Paul the, the oldest Christian hymns, for example, and he remembers them with affection. Verse 8, we, we'll just go faster through these. It says, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in Lord. Greet Urbanus, that's a slave name, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Oh, Stachys, that's my boy. Greet Apelles, who, uh, where am I? who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. That's a, a wealthy family in Rome. Greet my kinsman Herodian, possibly a descendant of Herod the Great. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. And that means what it means. Like somehow these, this family, the Narcissus family, came to know and experience the love of Jesus and take their eyes off of themselves and put their eyes on Jesus. And Paul says, greet them. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Maybe these are sisters. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Maybe they're twins. It's like, I, I never could tell which one was Tryphena or who was Tryphosa. But together, man, they just rock it for, for the church. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Uh, this one's great. Greet Rufus. Rufus. That's my dog. Chosen in the Lord. And his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Remember what Jesus said? Anyone who loses mother or father, brother and sister, I will add a hundredfold. And I'll, anyone who loses a house, I'll give you more houses. This is the fulfillment. Wherever he goes, he's got new moms. Any house he goes into, because he's part of the family of God, he's got a new house. He's got these brothers and sisters in the Lord from all sorts of backgrounds and races and ethnic, uh, social economic statuses. He's got family in there. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nersus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Be affectionate with one another. Now, this is, there are some cultural things that are going on here. We, we lived in Europe. It was always a little disconcerting to me when people would kiss me especially when it was another dude. But that was the culture. This, whatever it means, it means that, hey, be affectionate, be family, lean into each other. If you're British, it might, it might be translated, greet one another with a hearty handshake because they're going to keep some distance there. But, but you get what he's getting at. And so he has got one last instruction for this family and for, the, for these people that he loves and he's done some life together with. He says, I appeal to your brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He is adamant. He's been adamant for six for the last five chapters now that, that the church is to be unified. To avoid those that are divisive. Another, in another letter he says, uh, uh, if anyone is divisive, warn them once, warn them a second time, then have nothing to do with them. Because division in the church kills the church. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. For the God of peace, I love this contrast, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen? The grace of your Lord Jesus, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. 
So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, my brothers. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church here in Corinth, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, the guy who still has his name on a building today, he greets you. And our brothers, Quartus, greet you. This is, this is more than a list to the Apostle Paul. This is a list of love and affection for him, for them. See, Paul understood that flourishing happens when we live in right and deep relationship with God and God's people. With God and God's people. That's where flourishing happens. That's what we were designed to be. This is a reflection of the triune nature of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We live not just to ourselves, but to one another and to God. So again, I ask you, who is on your list? Who are the people that you look back and you think, God met me in this place through that person? Oh, I remember when this person came up. I mean, I thought about that a lot this week. And I mean, just over the last 30 years of following Christ, just how many people God has brought into my life. I think of my friend Chris. He was 23 years old. I was 23 years old. He was a young guy in the military. And as we were doing, starting off in ministry and wanting to go back to seminary, he said, you know what? I think the Lord is calling us to pay for your seminary. That's $30,000. You're just 23 years old and you're in the military. He's like, yes. And I, I remember him with affection. I'm going to his retirement ceremony in the military next month. I think of, I think of Joe, who uh, he came on a, a new airman and he came up to me. I was giving a, a presentation to all the new airmen on base and and he came up to me, he's like, I'm not a Christian, I'll never be a Christian, but can I come to your men's Bible study? I'm like, sure, Joe, come on over. Comes the first week, comes the next week, gives his life to Christ, ends up becoming uh, one of our worship leaders and just this long history. So who's on your list? What kind of stories would you tell? Now, the other question is, what's at stake if, if Romans 16 isn't here? Again, we, we can tend to just leave it, uh, but, but, uh, but I think a few things are at stake. One, our flourishing is at stake. Well, we were designed to live in deep and right relationship with God and with one another, and Paul is showing he's practiced what he's preached. So our flourishing is at stake, but there's more than that that's at stake. Our mission is at stake. Our missional opportunity is at stake. A few years ago, in 2018, there was a study done to try to determine, based on internet web searches and, and the keywords that people are putting in, per capita, what are the loneliest cities in America? And number one was Las Vegas, Nevada. You start to think about it and you're like, yeah, all the promises and broken dreams that, that can happen in a place like Las Vegas, you could see why that'd be a disconnected, lonely city. Number two was Washington, D.C. And again, you think of D.C. and the dynamics of D.C. and the center of political power, but people coming from all over, but they're coming in a place of contention where there's just anger and bitterness and fighting, and, and so there's a loneliness in D.C. So those two didn't surprise me, but number three is what, what made my jaw drop. The third loneliest city in America is where you're at right now, in, in the greater Denver area. Denver's a lonely, transient city for a people made in the image of God, made and designed to be connected with God and with one another. They are disconnected. But you see, this presents a tremendous opportunity, not just for Redemption Parker, but for all the churches. We open wide our doors and welcome people 
We open our homes and welcome people just meeting that very felt human Imago Day need to be connected with one another. That could be your missional opportunity to help people feel connected. So our mission is at stake. Your relationship with God is not private. It's personal, but it cannot be private. Or at least it's not a biblical relationship. Now, think back to with me again to Rosetta, Pennsylvania. I called them an outlier, but but other studies have come along to say, is this, real, could, is this really even possible? Simply being deeply connected and committed to one another in community is for our health and for our good. Is that actually provable? Well, other studies have come along. Uh, John Ortberg, in his book, uh, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, he quotes a study that, that, sir, that researched 7,000 people over a period of nine years. Here's what he, they found. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use, but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but were isolated. Norberg concludes, in other words, it is better to eat donuts with friends than to eat broccoli alone. 